Hey everyone, this is Asher and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. Thank you so much for listening and to all those of you who've supported me in making this podcast happen. Thank you for your support on Patreon. And if you haven't already, please follow me at livinginthisqueerbody.com where you can sign up for my email list, learn about the guests, and find more about working with me. You can also follow me at livinginthisqueerbody on Instagram and you can support me on my Patreon. That allows me to produce this podcast, and I would really appreciate your support. So a while back, I discovered Marley Grace, who is our guest, by picking up a zine that was called How to Not Always Be Working, and it really resonated with me. It is now a book that is published and available anywhere books are sold, so you should check that out if that theme resonates for you. And you should also follow Marley, if you don't already, which many of you probably do, on Instagram at Marley Grace or at Personal Practice. And we talk about her project, Personal Practice, a bit on the podcast today. For those of you who don't know, Marley Grace is an improviser and author currently based in Michigan. She works with improvisation as a method for navigating being alive and making work through movement, quilting, writing, and hosting the center residency. She is also a sober queer artist and a self-described freak on a leash at times, and she was a lovely guest and someone who is super thoughtful about the idea of queer embodiment. And I learned a lot from talking to her and I hope you enjoy our interview. It would be nice to start out each podcast with the question that I think has a lot to do with what brought me to doing this podcast to begin with. And it's because of the work I was doing as a psychotherapist. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you learned early on in your life about having a body or being in a body. Mm. Well, hello. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, wow, what did I... So I grew up, I've always been a dancer. I grew up as a ballerina. And the first time I like understood about having a body, it was like, I knew that I loved to move my body. So maybe my first feeling is like really joyful. Like the first Mm -hmm. memory I have of dancing is this home video where I'm dancing to Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation on the couch and I'm just like so joyful and so happy. And then we sort of move into like ballerina time from age 9 to 18 and there was a lot of yeah, there's a lot of pressure on like how a body is supposed to look in a leotard mm-hmm. and yeah. I spent you know a good decade just staring at myself in a mirror every day. <laughs> so mm. I, I, but I was definitely someone with just like a fast 
metabolism. And like, it wasn't until sort of my later teens that like my body sort of started to change. And then it was like, okay, I have the quote wrong body to be a ballerina, but I had the right body to be a modern dancer. Mm-hmm. So then that's just what I did and became, which is sort of interesting. My body actually led, changed and led me into a thing that served me more. So yeah, that's sort of mm. my, my original body thoughts. Wow. Yeah. Not uncommon to have that experience with ballet, but it's just interesting. I don't know. I think about whether or not I was not compelled by ballet necessarily, but I think a lot about how people who were immersed in that world as a young child for so long kind of developed a sense of, of a body because like a a body autonomy in some ways because Mm -hmm. of how the expectations kind of went or the rigorousness of kind of accommodating your body to or trying to accommodate your body to a certain standard. I've talked to people before who've taken some, like taken a lot of pleasure in that process actually. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, what was it like for you when you were, I mean, nine to 18 is a big span of time, Mm -hmm. different, different parts of your life, but yeah, I dancing is this interesting thing to me because it's both my practice. It's like the thing I've done the longest. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, I really started dancing when I was five and like taking classes. And yeah, it's a thing I've done for almost 26 years. It's like, cool. I have really been dancing for a long time. Yeah, I didn't have like, even though I was sort of like held to the standard of like, this is what your body is supposed to look like or supposed to do. It somehow didn't, I must've had some sort of force field around me because it it didn't really impact me negatively. I just kind of like heard it and was like, yeah, well, my body looks like this. So I'm going to just keep doing it. And it wasn't until sort of later now in the last few years where I've dealt with more like physical pain things come up in my body where I've had to actually start remembering that I have a body. It's strange. I feel both like overly embodied and sometimes really disconnected. They kind of go in waves. But yeah, I would say for the most part, growing up as a dancer, I just, I've always felt really lucky. I love to touch. I love to be touched. I love to move. Yeah. I'm really grateful that I don't, I don't have blocks around that. And because of that, in the way that I share my dancing online, it really impacts people because I'm like, yes, I'm this trained dancer. That's what I went to college for. It's what I do. It's what I teach. But I'm also just like, dancing around in my living room a lot of the times and I think people are just struck by that for whatever reason and I'm lucky that it's not an over doesn't take that much for me to just be dancing in the world so I actually wanted to talk to you about personal practice because if people haven't seen it they can check it out personal practice on Instagram but it you know I've been kind of watching your videos for a while. And one of the things that I was curious to talk to you about was in that kind of intimacy, you know, living room space, let's say, do you, do you feel like you experience a sort of wide range of, I don't know, like motivations or emotions as you're, you're doing these short little kind of performances essentially? 
I guess the reason I, I mean, I'm sure you do, but I guess the reason I ask is just, it's so striking to watch and to think about, you know, sometimes it being a very seemingly meditative space for you. Sometimes it's celebratory, it's like a mm. struggle, but I just wonder what's, what else is happening for you internally around, you know, that project. Um, yeah, I, I have many many different motivations for posting a personal practice video and somehow have maintained like having no shame about any of them with this specific project, which is really cool because I can attach shame and judgment to almost everything else that I do. But there's (laughs) there's something where I just like don't feel bad taking up space in that, in that feed literally. And I think part of that is because Hmm. it's never really like, it's really never been for anyone other than me. It's really just like my place to put dance videos. I I like watching them. It reminds me of what my body is going through. Um, It's just a strange phenomenon that so many other people seem to, to also be interested in it. But yeah, sometimes it's very like, sometimes the impulse is sort of the opposite where I'm like, I want to dance right now, but I don't feel, or like, I know that how I feel after I move my body is usually good or better or something shifts. And so sometimes I'll start recording just to make myself dance. Mm -hmm. And then that's maybe like a hit or miss. Like sometimes those videos make it to the feed. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes I'm literally like, I just bought this new leotard and would like everyone to see how fucking great I look in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like put that on it. You know, sometimes it's like a song is already on and it's really fun. You know, there there really is just like a million different reasons or ways, but I can't totally escape the like, it's not as much that I'm looking for like validation, but I like, I do like the connection. Like I like posting something that I know is maybe going to be funny or land in a certain way and having other people be like, yes, me too. And I think, yeah, I'm looking for connection. I think especially the last few months being back in Michigan and like not really having a, I do have some community here, but I I really don't have queer community. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people who follow me, on either account are also queer and there's just like sometimes that's just where I find my people and so sometimes it's just about that um connection wanting to like be with my people when I can't in real life so yeah it's it's yeah it's interesting you said that because I was thinking that so much of your humor is very queer in some ways the humor in that in the, like it like you know resonates with kind of a queer sensibility or aesthetic or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and so it makes sense in a lot of ways that you, that that works for you. I guess yeah. I'd love to hear you talk more about how your queer identity and sense of yourself as a queer person has, has kind of shifted as you've been moving around and um, yeah. literally moving around geographically, but also just moving in and out of different roles? Yeah, my queer, this is maybe the first time I'll speak of this publicly. I mean, I feel like it's like, I just share my life. So there's a lot of like, my life that is just obvious, like, who I'm dating, who I'm not dating, you know, what, how Mm. I exist in the world, what clothes I wear, that I think, like, I don't really have to out myself in some ways. But I, 
have really experienced in the last few years, this really different, both like my visibility in the world as a queer person looks a lot different. I used to be married to a cis man and I'm not married to a cis man anymore. And, and I don't date cis men anymore. And so, but I, but I've always been queer in a couple different ways. So it's like, I, yeah, it's been, it's been, I don't know even what the word is. I don't want to use the word interesting because it's not really interesting. It's more just been this, like, there's been new layers of like, how do I come out to myself is actually something I think I've been thinking Mm -hmm. about a lot. And like, does the word queer still fit a little bit of like, Mm -hmm. it's the word that I always used, but didn't necessarily present that way. Like if I was in a hetero presenting relationship but it was also like we were poly and so I was like had other partners but then something really shit and I've always been like I'm queer because I love everyone I have sex with everyone I date everyone but then all of a sudden I was like actually no I don't date everyone I really date women or non-binary folks or like just you know I stopped dating cis men basically (laughs) and so there's sort of this interesting level of like, do I use new words? Do I not use new words? That shifted a lot for me. You know, I got divorced. I moved to California. My Saturn returned. Just a pretty classic gay fucking story right there. (laughs) And so then now that I'm back in Grand Rapids, it's also really interesting because I'm back in this place, you know, identifying in a really different way and feeling really different in my sexuality and, and feeling sort of like isolated in that there's really not, I don't, I'm not really seeing the sort of queer community that I am longing for. And I didn't have that in the small town that I was living in in California either, but my partner at the time, she lived in LA. So it was like, I got to have the LA world. I got to live the real L word, you know? What was it like? It wasn't anything like that. It was a lot more punk and a lot less problematic, but just as trashy and good, you know, and beautiful. Oh, yeah. Dramatic, too. <laughs> dramatic. It just yeah. is dramatic. But it's also so funny because it reminds me of, like, when sometimes when someone asks the, like, what do you do? And you're, like, say what you do. Mm-hmm. I always – there's something around saying, like, I'm a dancer that I get like kind of frozen and I'm like, am I a dancer? And it's, again, it's like literally the thing, I couldn't have more factual proof that I am a dancer, but it's the thing that I'm the most like, I don't know. And I have, I've always had that around being queer, which, you know, I could read every cheesy thing that's like, if you're, you're just as queer as you (laughs) want to be, it doesn't matter. You could... I could date a cis man forever and still be queer. It's like, I know that that's still valid, but there's still, even though all the facts of my life are about is like, just, yeah, gay, mm-hmm. queer, lesbian, dykey as they get, it's like, I'm still can get frozen. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I'm, I think also currently as a single person, there's like invisibility in that in some ways and not really having other queer friends where I live. So yeah. Wow, that was my long, very personal answer, but I think that's what the podcast is for. So, sure is. Yeah, I mean, I th- I was thinking as you were talking though that I don't know if this is your experience, but I grew up in Missouri and in a place where there weren't, at least I wasn't interacting with a lot of visible queer people at all, mm-hmm. and generationally, just very, it was very different than probably life 
nowadays with the kids, but it's still, it's, I think that I wonder sometimes if the kind of not having my sexuality sort of validated or seen, just not even recognized kind of had anything to do, I mean, definitely had something to do with sort of how I've related to my queer identity and what kind of what it's taken in order to be more embodied in that, I guess, and be, you know, and I think a lot of, maybe I've been more sensitive over the years to things like, you know, I was pregnant for a while and people assume many, many, many people assume that I was in a straight relationship. Right. And things like that, you know, markers of, of my, you know, potentially not queerness, even though I'm pretty queer, (laughs) like visibly in in many ways, but you know, people want people want to read in whatever they can. So I I don't know. I just wonder if that's part of it is that there's it's recognition and like Mm -hmm. social recognition and being read a certain way and who is around you and what they want to see, you know? Well, I think that that's a, I mean, okay. So I think I have like a clear thought process about some of what I experienced in my own sexuality shifting was like, even though, yeah, I grew up in a home that was, you know, my parents have always been like, I have beautiful liberal parents who are just Mm -hmm. like, you can love whoever the hell you want. Like, I feel like when I, the first time I finally was like, I'm bringing home someone I'm dating and it's a woman. I was like, had this, I was like, (gasps) and they were like, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, oh, wow, cool. Thank you. You know, and I feel really, you know, a lot of the people I date don't have that experience. I think a lot of queer people don't have that experience. So I definitely feel really lucky to have parents who truly will love, you know, whoever I love. But yeah, I was thinking there was like this business here in Grand Rapids that recently like celebrated a milestone of years. And like, I was sort of like looking through everything and I'm like, wow, there's nothing that's like lesbian owned this thing. And it clearly is that. And, you know, I think part of that is, I would imagine self-protection of like, when you live in this town, that's really conservative. It's like, you know, that's maybe not like a marker to them that they want to have, like in terms of safety, but it's also like reminds me of like, well, maybe if I would have known that and seen that and knew that that's what it was called, I could have seen myself in some of that at a younger age and how, you know, that just because you're queer doesn't mean you can't hold your own like internalized homophobia. And I think that Mm -hmm. I definitely relate to that. Like, I just didn't see myself. I didn't see myself on TV. I think especially, I think, I think all all queer people, but like for me, just like I didn't see women loving women. And so I was just like, well, I guess I don't see that. And I'm sure something about the world was like, well, and we need men, obviously. That's how we <laughs> survive. You know, even if it wasn't, even if I knew that wasn't true, there's so much that I think seeps into us that we like don't even realize. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess at some point, And again, even like in queer community with examples of it, I think I had like suppressed some of it so far and had so much like, I can have sex with women, but I couldn't, and I could fall in love with them, but I like couldn't link them out of like fear or again, that own like internalized homophobia. Or maybe I was just like, I don't want to be gay. I 
it'd probably be better to exist in the world if I just wasn't. And I was just this overarching umbrella of queerness and can exist within that. So yeah, I've been sort of exploring that too of like where did my own umbrella was somewhat blocking what else needed to come up for me to match that sort of like, can I love someone and be physically intimate with them? The answer is yes. And the unpacking sort of came later. I didn't necessarily, like for anyone listening, I think you don't have to like have it all figured out before you can like attempt to do that. I think it was just, yeah, the right person, the right time, the right like energetic space for me. But yeah, I think, and I think that that's part of the importance of like my own visibility now because yeah, I want people to see people loving each other that doesn't look like the way I saw it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see myself so yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting how those that kind of delinking process happens and what it feels like I mean I think that a lot of what I've wondered about in in starting this podcast and thinking about what embodiment means for different people for me it, it can feel like as many parts of myself as as can coexist at the same time and are linked up, you know, I, that is a nice like embodied moment when multiple parts of me can sort of coexist. And so I think that Mm. there's a lot of, at least for me, there's been a lot of relief in being able to um, link up these parts. And so I'm curious, you were talking a little bit before about body pain Mm-hmm. and pain kind of being a, I'm curious what it, you know, what, where it's led you, but it being something that's helped you link some things from your past and. Yeah. I deal with a lot of, um, spinal pain. Mm. That's my, that's my pain. That's my pain source. And I've been dealing with it more in the last few months. And I'm definitely a person who, in like a not, I don't know. I feel like there's like some maybe new age schools of thought that are a little too far out for me, but I'm definitely like, to me, when my body is in pain, again, this is just for me. I know that it's telling me that something outside of my body, it needs to be addressed Mm -hmm. or in my mind or heart space or, you know, it's usually, it's often usually some emotional trauma or, something that's getting stuck. Um, so yeah, I had an, I had a knee injury also many years ago that sort of like continues to have a ripple effect in the rest of my body and my joints. But yeah, I'm sort of just on the, on this, you know, who knows how long what I'm about to say will stay true. But just in the past few weeks, I've sort of made some like really huge, dietary changes. I quit Mm -hmm. coffee and sugar and took gluten out and have been doing like eating at specific times and to just sort of like see what can shift because I think I'm dealing with a lot of like joint inflammation. And so, yeah, my body really, really hurts right now. And it's really, really hurt since I got back to Michigan and I'm working through yeah, I think some of this stuff about my identity coming up and I've been like working through some money beliefs. My family unit is changing. There's just a lot sort of Mm. that I'm working with. And 
I don't really feel, I feel like pretty hopeful, which is nice. A lot of times when my body is experiencing a lot of pain, it's really, really hard for me to stay hopeful about the changes. Um, I also get pretty regular craniosacral therapy and that has been really helpful to me because so much of it is wound up in my spine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's been good for me to start saying out loud to other people or publicly, like I'm experiencing a lot of physical pain because I don't like to say that. I'm really comfortable talking about my emotional pain, but there's something about this, these like mystery pains in my spine that I'm like, I don't really want to tell anybody I have mystery pains in my spine. Like I just, but it's, but I do. And I think it's important that like, especially as someone who's really public on the internet, not that I need to say it on the internet, but like, it's nice to just say it in this conversation because I think we all have projections about people while we're looking at them and we don't know what their spine feels like when they're posting a great picture of themselves somewhere, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. I have also, and people will hear more about this um, <laughs> as as I continue with the podcast, but you know that a lot of the reasons that I ended up starting this podcast is is because my practice, my psychotherapy practice had to shift um, and I had to become much more public, at least to my patients and my community, that I had chronic health issues. And it was, it kind of got to a point where it wasn't something I could kind of contain just for myself. It was like, I had to tell people and, you know, it's definitely something I want to keep talking about on this podcast because so many of the people I work with in my practice um, and so many of my friends and people in my community have, you know, not only do we have aging bodies, but we also, many people have body pain and it's not always very visible and it does feel like it's something for that's hard to talk about for many people. It's sort of like why, I mean, I've thought about this for myself, but why is it, what's, what's so vulnerable or difficult about talking mm. about physical pain as opposed to like our queer, you know, continual processing about our emotional distress and like what I don't know I mean that's uncomfortable too sometimes but you know we're much there are much more many more kind of structures in place to talk about that um like our psychic distress I think Mm -hmm. than there are to talk about not that these two things as you said you kind of said that they're you know for you they're not Mm -hmm. separate um Mm -hmm. they're often very linked but something I'm thinking about is I'm like this is maybe a sad feeling, but I'm like, I think I have a little bit of a narrative around like body pain is my fault. And the other stuff is like just the way God made me, you know, I'm like, well, God, you know, there's some like weird Mm. acceptance where I'm like, well, I'm, I was just programmed this way. And there's something about the body pain where I'm like, I, or I think I should be able to fix it myself faster which then usually just makes it hurt more. So I should remember that also. But yeah, there's like a different, yeah, I don't know. I hold some different, I hold my body, my physical body to like a different standard that's really pretty unfair. And if anything, it maybe should be reversed. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you and I talked a little bit about this idea of addictive behaviors and how, I'm curious where, sort of addiction or addictive behaviors falls in the spectrum of what is your fault or is it the body or the, 
you know, is this the way you're programmed or, you know, kind of how you navigate that. That's a, I mean, enormous question, but (laughs) however you want to answer that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. My mind kind of went there too. Yeah. Because, you know, I identify as an, as an alcoholic in recovery and I, yeah, both have like the, the gene for alcoholism. That's, you know, both my mom's parents died from alcoholism, from addiction, on my dad's side um and you know it's been in a few weeks it'll be eight years since I had a drink wow but it's also like I see how how it manifests in so much other behavior and so I've, I've always had questions around like how alcoholism often talked about as a disease and I love that I heard someone say in a meeting once, I don't know if it's a disease or not, but either way, I know I've got it. (laughs) And I, I loved that because I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't try to like pick apart alcoholism too much. It's just like, I know that when I drink and do drugs and put them in my body, I can't stop and Mm -hmm. I was going to die. And so today I just don't want, I don't want to die. Some days I do. And I have a lot of other tools to not die, but I, I know overall that I don't at least want to accidentally die, not on my own terms, not mm-hmm. on my kind of wood. I might still, that could still happen. I could still walk across the street. But um, the point being is that even though I took alcohol and hard drugs out of my life, I, you know, we got the phone, we got food, we got sex, we got, I mean, we got shopping, you know, we've got a lot of different things that I can still reach towards. So, and that's a, that's a, that's a spine thing for me too. Like I definitely feel like when that behavior is a little bit more in alignment, my spine is literally a little bit more in alignment. And so, yeah, I'm thinking about addiction all the time. And I think that's yet another identity that I sometimes I'm like, ah, I don't know, there's this person in Toronto, Faith, and they make this great zine or made it a long time ago I think they're going to remake it that's just called sober queers do exist (laughs) and I'll never forget like seeing that Mm. cover and just be like that like it was one of the first times that I was sort of like that's what I am like I'm a sober queer and yeah I don't always Mm. know where to talk about that or like where because again I think in a lot of recovery communities we don't see queer people we don't see enough queer people we don't see enough people of color and we don't see enough young people and so you know I'm always trying to figure out like how how to make that ripple out more because I think a lot of people who hold marginalized identities don't who are also often the most affected by alcoholism and addiction don't see it's again we're back to like where are we not seeing ourselves Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I hope that, I think that's a place where I always feel like important being visible in my queerness is being a, re, you know, as a person in recovery because yeah, that was like my first meeting almost eight years ago was like a queer meeting. And no. I just immediately was like, oh my God, great. Okay. Especially in Grand getting sober in Grand Rapids. I was like, oh wow, great. My people. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like another bringing together of a lot of different parts of yourself that can coexist, or at least even in Grand Rapids. Even in Grand Rapids. (laughs) I'm sure there's plenty of that in Grand Rapids. Not enough, but yeah. Just to talk a little bit more about these 
you know, addiction, I guess I think of as, as one of the barriers to feeling embodied or addictive Mm. behaviors, you know, I don't know if that's how you experience it, but kind of a distraction from being in your body or whatever the case may be. But I guess the thing we haven't really talked about is sort of how your identity as a dancer, as a mover person, how that feels. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, you know, does that automatically mean that you feel embodied, you know, when you're dancing, right? Or when you're moving? And I think that the, I guess what I'm trying to address is like the binaries of, you know, addiction is a distraction and now you're a dancer. So you're really, you're a dancer and you're sober and you're embodied, right? You know, I mean, there's, I think that there's a lot more to it, obviously, but I'm curious how you, how you feel about that. Yeah, I, I would say that I, most of the time when I'm dancing and because I'm a dancer, I am embodied. I, I think that, yes, but I also, it's kind of goes back to the, like, that great question around like, what are the motivations for posting a video? It's like, if we're sort of in the, in the land, I'm thinking of the really, really specific video of me literally wearing a like striped leotard, eating meringues, listening to Mariah Carey in my house a couple from maybe a month or two ago. And it's like, not I'm floating. I'm so far away from my body. I have no, I don't even know where it is. It's like, I'm, and it's funny because if you saw that, you might think of that as maybe what looks like one of the more embodied videos. It's like, I'm clearly feeling myself. I'm feeling myself emotionally. I can, I think I look good. I like how I feel, but I'm not really like, feeling my actual physical body. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's definitely, and the way that I explain that sometimes is like, again, dance is, it's sort of like if you asked like a graphic designer, if they were always embodied when they're graphic designing on the computer or something, it's like, no, like, but sometimes they might be, but it's sort of that like dancing is just my, is just a medium of art making. It's a medium of Mm -hmm. composition, just like somebody else who is, is painting or crocheting. It's like, Mm -hmm. we can all be embodied or not embodied no matter what we're doing. So yeah, I can definitely be really disconnected from my body. But also I think maybe what's interesting for me is like, I always know like that. I don't, I don't really like, like even sometimes if I totally dissociate, I feel like I'm at least like, all right, we're going out now. Like I I have a lot of extreme awareness for better or worse of pretty much always what's happening (laughs) to my body and my mind. Which, which, which kind of links back to what sobriety is for me and like, mm-hmm. kind of that, that, like the emotional part of sobriety is sort of like this inventory of self, yeah. um, which can be really amazing and maybe be sort of tiring sometimes. So I guess, you know, we, we actually just have a little bit more time, but before we end, I want to ask you two more things. One is if you could go back in time and say something to a younger version of yourself, what younger version might you choose and what might you say? 
Wow. I'm having like multiple childhood <laughs> flash moments. Um, I'm thinking of like two and they're sort of related to like queerness and art, but mm. it was like as a child, like getting caught making out with the neighbor girl at like 10 years old and being like pretty much told it was bad. And I don't think I was necessarily told it was bad because we were both girls, but maybe it was like our age, but I just like, that was like a totally buried memory. So maybe telling her that like, it's going to be fine. You can, <laughs> you can make out with whoever you yeah. can, it's going to be great and yeah. you're going to love it. And <laughs> don't worry. And nobody's parent is going to walk in on you and make you feel weird. Uh, yeah. So I'd maybe tell her that mm-hmm. that would have probably saved a lot of years, yeah. a lot of money of therapy, just uh-huh. a lot, just that one little moment. Uh-huh. So maybe we'll go back to that. And then the uh-huh. other one was this moment of like, uh, I had a moment where my creativity was shamed. I was probably nine. So we're kind of looking at the whole nine to 10 age range. So I think also telling that Marley that like, you're kind of just back to like, you're going to be a freak and you're going to make an impact and it's going to be intense for a lot of people and they're not going to like it actually. And they're going to want to kind of make you small because you're kind of a lot Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And you're going to just have to find people who like that. And then when they stop liking that, you can let them go and, Mm -hmm. and that's okay too. So I think those Mm -hmm. are my two, my two. Yeah. I like that a lot. Thanks for asking. That felt great to say. I'm like, well, (laughs) that Marley's healed. So (laughs) next, next. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. So what would you like to tell the listeners about what you're up to nowadays? In my head, I was like nothing. I want them to know nothing else. I have just told them my deepest secrets (laughs) and I feel so vulnerable. It's so funny. I never feel, this is something that people often when they watch personal practice, they're like, thank you for being vulnerable. And I'm just like, this is not this, that again, it's like embodiment or it's like, I'm like, this is actually not my vulnerable space. I feel extremely comfortable and Mm. I don't feel vulnerable. I feel Mm -hmm. like a freak on a leash and I'm just letting myself go (laughs) in front of, in front of everybody. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's part of me that's like, yeah, it's it goes back to like what I keep private that when you just asked that I was literally like, I don't know if I want there's just nothing to know. I don't know. I'm just I'm really working on and that's the thing. I'm like working on really private stuff right now, which is mm. really different for me. It's like I'm pretty public about my work and I'm usually pretty public about what I'm going through. And yeah, the story I shared about my sexuality is like years old now. So that feels interesting that I'm like just sort of sharing it. Hmm. And usually I'm sharing like a little too in real time. I think sometimes I'm like, here here we go. I figured this out two minutes ago. You know, I'm sure I'll make my own. I'll go write a book right now. Like how to talk to 10 year old Marley. Cause I figured <laughs> I thought of it two minutes ago. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. I'm up to like letting things just gestate, gestate, yeah. gestate mm-hmm. a little longer. Mm-hmm. I'm working on my solar plexus and kind of keeping mm-hmm. things in a little bit more instead of out. That's what I worked on today. Just oh. truly just before this podcast wow. episode. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, I'm working on, I'm just kind of trying to really work on real life Marley. You know, again, I turned 30. I'm going to be 31 in like a month. No, two months. And uh, I, yeah, I'm just kind of having some of that, like, I'm an adult person now. And I would like to like, treat myself that way and see myself that way and sort of like, have, I don't know what that means exactly, other than like, sort of taking care of myself more seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. That's what yeah. That's what I'm on. Definitely. Yeah. Aren't we all? But yes. Yes. Nice to hear. Yes. It's nice to hear you're doing that. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. I had no idea where we would go. I didn't either. And we went to places I didn't think we would. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah.